This Choircast podcast is brought to you by the book Too Much and Not Enough, Sacred Thoughts Said Out Loud by Karen Schock. This book is for anyone who has big questions about God and is feeling like a misfit among the people who seem to have it all figured out. Journey with me as we dive into the hard stuff and ask the questions no one else seems to want to ask. We will laugh and cry together. You will shake your head along with me as you read the real stories of anxiety and depression, parenting and marriage, and just plain living this life in the messy middle. I don't have all the answers, but my hope in writing this book is that you, the reader, will feel seen. There is a God who is big enough to handle all of our questions and more loving than we can ever imagine. Let's lean into this life together as we learn how to love and be loved in Too Much and Not Enough, available now on Amazon. Hey, everyone. What's up? Welcome back to the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. I feel like I say this too much, but it's always kind of true, which is that I'm really looking forward to introducing you to my friend Greg Garrett today. Actually, some of you may already know him. You should because his work has been nominated for Pulitzer Prizes and National Book Awards. He's both a novelist and a nonfiction writer. We need a word for being a nonfiction writer. Like he's a novelist and a nonfictionist. I met him through Sarah Stancorp's agent, Kelly, who was like, hey, do you like James Baldwin? Because I got a friend who's written on him. And I said, stop, you had me at James Baldwin. So the book is called The Gospel According to James Baldwin, What America's Great Prophet Can Teach Us About Life, Love, and Identity. Yeah, and about four pages in, I had the thought, oh man, this guy knows how to write. And then another few pages, and I'm like, wait, who is this dude? And then I find out about his pedigree, so I'm really glad to get to know him. And you know what? He's a really nice guy, too. And look, it's kind of fun being around talented people. But for me, the talent part kind of wears thin after a while. But talented and nice, that's a great combination. And Greg has it going on. So yeah, the gospel according to James Baldwin with Greg Garrett. We're going to get to that in a minute. Meanwhile, hey, if you are someone who's like, man, I really like this JF dude. I wonder how I could support him and the show, maybe pick up some of his writing then you should jump on my Substack page. Just search for Jonathan underscore Foster on Substack or click on the link in the show notes or go to my website to find the link. There are plenty of avenues to get to the site. It's where I write regularly and offer lots of stuff for those people who subscribe both for free and for those who give like only five bucks a month, something like that. Plus, most importantly, I draw cartoons and I'm really funny. That's what I've been told. Anyhow, it'd be great to have you a part of the journey with me. Speaking of journeys, Indigo, The Color of Grief comes out on October 17th. It's my latest writing. It took me a long time to learn how to write like this. And some of the early reviews are really humbling. Real quick, here's what my friend, Dr. Richard Boothby had to say. He says, Foster's Slender Volume is an incredible gem an understated masterpiece that draws the reader into it with a force-like gravity and delivers a whole series of profound reflections that pass over one's consciousness like the radiating rings of a stone thrown into a still and silent pond. Jeez, that's super nice of him. 
So yeah, I think this writing has a chance to put a dent into the world's thinking about love, life, and loss, and I hope that you can participate. That's happening on the Indiegogo crowdfunding site on October 17th. And yeah, if you just plug into any of my social media or anything, you'll be able to hear about that as it takes place. All right, let's get to our conversation today with the author, Greg Garrett. Thanks, everyone. All right, everyone. Well, welcome back to the show and welcome uh, my new, I hope, I hope my new friend. This is Greg Garrett, and it's really great to have you on. Really, really have enjoyed. I'm almost finished reading the book, and I'm a big, I'm slightly embarrassed. I say I'm a big James Baldwin fan. I've really only read, oh, geez, now the names are escaping me. What's the one with fire? Yeah, The Fire Next Time. Fire Next Time. And then uh, Notes. Which yeah, the one? Native son. No, it's native son. And that's, I mean, that's that's your entry. That's those are those are the great things to start with. That's hilarious. Not only could I remember, not remember the time, I remember two words from each one: notes and fire. <laughs> that's about all you need with James Baldwin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really good stuff. Um, you're, you're, uh, I'm sure you've heard this before, but you're an excellent writer. It was. Oh. That was a joy to be, I was in about the second page and I'm like, oh yeah, this guy knows how to write. And I'm, then I'm like, by about page four, I'm like, wait a minute, who is this guy? How come I don't know him? And then come to find out, well, obviously he's a, he knows how to write. Um, you've won some awards and kind of, kind of uh, carved out a little niche for yourself. So, so I'm really honored to have you on today. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you so much. And, and this book was a joy to write. And like apparently all of the books that I'm writing post-pandemic, it's taken forever. Um, but you know, that that attention to craft and to to thinking through some things that the pandemic gave us uh has been a real gift. And so this this is so much better a book than it would have been if I had written it originally when I thought I was gonna write it. Interesting. Uh, so I I've had a chance to learn so much more and to talk to people who love Baldwin and to follow him around the globe. Uh, and those things were not largely possible during the pandemic. Right. So this, you know, it's it's the right book at the right time, I hope. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like it speaks into, I mean, certainly to American culture, American politics, American faith, uh, American art in some really powerful ways. And uh, so it's every, every chance I get to sit down and, and spend some time with Mr. Baldwin is a good thing. And, and so I hope it will be rewarding uh, for us to talk about that that experience today. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I thought of pretty quickly on was how well you do at inserting actual Baldwin quotes. So sometimes, you know, we all pick up books about people that you may or may not read anything that the actual person actually said, which I'm not saying that's necessarily right or wrong because there's room for commentary. But um I thought that's one of the things that took the book to the next level is your ability to provide the commentary because you got to have that. But there is a there's a lot of Baldwin quotes inside there that you know, and a couple that I had not seen before, and I, I've highlighted a, a bunch of it. So that's just, I guess that's not a question; it's just a comment. That's another really. No, but I, I can respond to that because Jonathan, I you know I tell my students at Baylor, um, there's a reason for direct quotation. You know, there's a reason for paraphrase. There's a reason for indirect quotations, 
But when the author says it better than you can possibly say it, right. then, then you ought to present that if at all possible. Yeah. And uh, one of my goals in this book, uh, you know, I, I wrote it for people who are familiar with Baldwin and maybe not familiar with all of his work, but, you know, love and admire him. Uh, but I also wanted it to be an introduction to Baldwin and for people to be inspired, you know, to to dive into the books for themselves. And, you know, what I think good criticism do, and I think of myself as sort of a theological critic. Um, I, I think really good criticism enlightens people about the works, but it also encourages them to experience them for themselves. And, and that's that's my big hope. It's like, you know, if you've read this book, then you go back and read or reread Baldwin with, you know, maybe some new insights and some new um, awareness of what it is that he's trying to do. Um, but for me, one of the biggest things was I don't want to read Baldwin in a way that is Greg Garrett trying to talk about what matters to Craig Garrett. I wanted to present Baldwin in his own words and then to talk about what I was finding there. Um, and, and you and I know that it is, is easy for people to say, I mean, exegesis is about interpreting the text in front of you and eisegesis is about bringing yourself to the text and kind of eclipsing it in favor of yourself. This is not a book about Greg Garrett, except in to the extent that I'm following Baldwin around and and trying to open up those words uh, for for people who are reading. Yeah, you do a really good job with that. And uh, and again, there's there's room for the other, but it's always nice uh, to. It I think it takes extra skill to do what you did and what you're doing. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, I hadn't, you know, you just said theological critic, or I don't remember what that phrase was. Um, I wasn't necessarily surprised to see or hear Bard Baldwin refer to himself as a theologian a time or two. Yeah. Um, but that was interesting that, that he might've thought of himself in that way, though. That's not the first word that comes to mind, um, when people talk about him. So he, yeah, he was, I, yeah, go ahead. I think one of the things that's really interesting, and I, I talk about this in the faith chapter, and as I've had conversations about the book over the last couple of weeks, I've been thinking and reliving and rereading. Um, I I preached about Baldwin, Dr. King, and Maya Angelou at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, last fall on All Saints Day. And uh, Wilshire Baptist Church is, if we can hold this phrase together in our heads, a progressive Baptist church in Dallas, Texas. That's hard, but um, I've got it. I've got it. Okay. And, and, and readers, please follow. Listeners, please follow. Um, and, and one of my great partners over the last five, six, seven years uh, in doing work on racial reconciliation, which again is not something that we associate with a traditional Baptist church. You know, these are these are people who are outward facing and trying to do this work of beloved community, as Dr. King talked about it. And in that sermon last fall, uh, it was actually on my birthday, November sixth. Um, I said, you know, James Baldwin left the church as a teenager and spent his life talking about how he had left the church. But I believe that if he were standing here in front of us today, we would recognize the spirit of Jesus in him. 
And uh, one of the things that I had not included in the book, but I ran across uh, a, a week or, s- or so ago, was the open letter that he wrote to Desmond Tutu toward the end of his life. And he said, I am not, a, you know, I'm not a person of faith. And then he stopped and caught himself and amended that. And, you know, for great writers, great artists, you know, when they revise, there's there's a reason they're doing that. He's, he said, I am not a churchgoer. Right. And at the end of that letter to Desmond Tutu, he closed it with, in the faith. And, you know, argue as he might, I was raised Southern Baptist, so a slightly different tradition, you know, than, than Baldwin's Harlem Pentecostals, but not that different. Yeah. It was, it was a, sorry, I'm, I'm about to say something judgmental and I <laughs> try to avoid that when I, when I think about the church in my youth, because I, I received some powerful gifts. Sure, sure, sure. It was not a great place for me as a thinker and an artist. Right. And for Baldwin, the same sort of applied. Um, for him and for me, the churches of our youth were places where there was this sort of narrow, circumscribed set of beliefs you needed to ascribe to that excluded entirely too much of the human race. And so for about 25 years, I was in the place where Baldwin was, where I was saying, I am not a churchgoer. Um, I still believed in God. I still believe that Jesus was a rock and human being and maybe a divine human as well. Um, but until I came back into the church in an African-American Episcopal church in Austin, um, I didn't have a set of, a, I, I didn't have a vocabulary to talk about God in a way that was powerful to me. And I, I really do feel like that if Baldwin had found his people, if we could say it in that way. Um, so like Baldwin didn't have the the benefit of of reading James Cone and Kelly Brown Douglas and Anthony Reddy, you know, the great liberation theologians of the last 40 years. He didn't know that there was a church that would welcome him as he was. But he continued to think in terms of the King James version of the Bible that he was given. You will be hard-pressed to find a book of his that doesn't have an epigraph from the Bible or from uh, Black spirituals. And as I was doing my archival research, what I discovered was that over and over again in his letters to people, he asked them to pray for him, or he reveals these really powerful kind of faith spiritual experiences that he's having. Uh, So he talks about being in the upper room in Jerusalem and how profound and powerful an experience that was for him. And um, so um, Dante Stewart, who wrote this great memoir, Shouting in the Fire, uh, talks about Baldwin as a fellow traveler. And and that's how I have come to consider him. Um, I think that you or me, anybody who uh, cares deeply about the faith could have a really powerful conversation with Baldwin. And, And when he describes himself as a theologian, I mean, what he is saying is, I still believe in God. I still believe that it's important to think about what human beings are supposed to be. I still believe that it's important to think about what community is. I still believe in justice. And he talked about these two things, and I, I come back to these throughout the book. He he always referenced the New Jerusalem. You know, someday we will arrive at this New Jerusalem. 
And throughout his life, he talked about the welcome table. And, and coming back to faith in an African-American church in Austin, uh, I was introduced to the spiritual. Um, someday I'm going to sit at the welcome table. And, and for Baldwin, that was the place where every children of God could sit down and who we loved, how we worshiped, what we looked like, what we believed. None of those things would matter anymore. Like we would just be seen and loved and appreciated. And as I point out a couple of times in the book, at the end of his life, he was working on a play set in the south of France where he and his friend Josephine Baker lived and where they had these open tables where they invited uh, people to come. And, and the play is called The Welcome Table. And, and that was you know, where he was at the end of his life. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And there's theology infused within all of that. That's so true. I know from my own journey, um, there's there's several things that have shifted, changed, constricted, expanded. But one one of the common denominators is that I've just been reminded over and over again of the beauty of humanity. And so often, my my background's somewhat similar to yours, maybe. You know, so often I think my tradition. Again, I totally agree with you. There's a lot of good things about my tradition. I'm thankful. I was th I'm thankful for what I had, but far too often we were so worried about squelching anything that might be remotely human, and and I think with good intentions usually, um, because we were trying to elevate the divine. But after a while, it just got weird. Anyhow, all that to say that no, no, no. That's it's all true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, all that to say that Baldwin. I recognize even as we're talking about it and having read your stuff uh, just yesterday. Um, by the way, I didn't plan to cram. That wasn't the that wasn't the point, but it it just turned out that way, and and I will finish it. But like the end of the book is really good. I know, I know. I actually jumped forward right before we started and read the end of it. Um, what was I trying to say? Oh, I was going to say I'm just reminded that. That is the a gift that Baldwin gave me and gives all of us is the beauty of humanity. And yeah. I've come to believe that, you know, good anthropology is good theology. Good theology yeah. is good anthropology. And you can't you can't have good theology without having an elevated awareness of humanity. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I mean, and, and that is it's at the heart of what I believe. And it's it's what this church in Austin gave to yeah, me. It sounds like it. Um, just this, this very powerful awareness. And I mean, you're probably aware, you know, that the black church can be conservative about cultural issues. Yep. Uh, but this, this church in Austin was open to everybody. And so they, you know, in the seventies, eighties, uh, before the big split in the Episcopal church, um, white people and Asian people and gay people had started coming to this traditionally black church. And they were like, this is changing us. And they, they had a meeting, you know, so the, the founders of the church, um, uh, all the men in their beautiful suits and all the women in their beautiful hats. And, and they had a conversation about it. And this harkens back to Baldwin, because basically what they said was this. We know what it is to be excluded. And we will never, ever exclude someone from this church. And, and that was transformational for them. And it, it turned out to be transformational for me. Yeah, because I, I walked into this church in the darkest moment of my life, mm. you know, and, and they saved my life. Mm -hmm. 
and patched me up and sent me out to do the work that I do now, mm -hmm. which is to talk about humanity. Mm -hmm. You know, how we are all God's children, how we got to do better, which is one of Baldwin's central lessons. Yeah, yeah. We we can and should do better. That is how you end the book, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, if that's the only lesson you take away from my book, um, I need that lesson every single day um, because I, I am trying hard to do my best and I fall short all the time. And. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that I talk about Baldwin as a saint is because in my tradition, in the Episcopal tradition, as in the Catholic tradition, in the Orthodox tradition, we believe that saints are not perfect, you know, but they, they are people who point us toward the divine and point us toward the opportunities that we have in our everyday lives to do better and be better. Mm -hmm. And what Baldwin does for me, because I don't believe Baldwin was a perfect human being. You know, I have read his correspondence. I have rooted around in his underwear drawer. <laughs> and so I know that in many ways he was a mess. But I also know that he was trying to live with courage and integrity and to tell the truth and to be a witness. And I mean, like, especially in our time, in 2023, that's a hard, hard thing to do. And... um so my admiration for him spilled over into this book, and it spills over into my everyday life. And that's one of the things that I hope that readers of the book and, and listeners to, to our conversation could recognize that, you know, you don't have to be perfect to do your best. Um, you, you know, you show up, you, you put your hands in the reel, as I think I put it in the last chapter, you get dirty, and you do better. Well, not only that, <clears throat> you don't have to be perfect to do your best work. You probably do your best work as you embody your imperfect self in, yeah. in, in who you are. So, yeah, per perfection is a, that's a loaded word in many religious circles, certainly in the holiness denomination that I came from. Um, yeah. What does, I, I don't know if it's Richard Rohr, I don't know who says it, but. Uh, there's a line that helped me many years ago that I've never forgotten. God's perfection is his willingness to live with our imperfection. Yeah, that, that sounds very Rorian, yeah. if I could. Yeah. It feels like I'm a lion, you know? Yeah, right. But yeah, that, that sounds a lot like him, and it sounds exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, Feels you know, right, doesn't it? It rings true, doesn't it? Yeah, in, in the churches of our, our youth, you know, it's like, be perfect as God is perfect. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't do that. I'm just, you know, I'm the Apostle Paul. You know, I know what I should do, and I don't do it. <laughs> and I mean, God bless him. I mean, just truth-telling, which is, you know, that's that's Baldwin at his best, is, right. is that truth-telling. Um, I'm going to tell the truth about me. I'm going to tell the truth about what I see. I'm going to tell the truth about American history. And until we tell the truth, we can't, we can't move forward. Yep. Yep. Um, I had a question. I don't know how to phrase it, but it basically has to do with the kind of paradoxical thing that happens when you come to Baldwin. And you you highlight this several times in different ways. So I think you'll pick up on what I'm trying to say. But like, it, you would think you would come to, you're, you're going to read about being a black person, or you're going to read about being a gay person, or you're going to read about being a person from this time period. But something yeah, or, goes or on. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
something happens with him where if you are serious and sit with it after a while, it's not, it's not this, you know, and I'm pointing for the listeners, I'm pointing my hands inward. It's the opposite. It's this expansive thing that happens. So I don't know what my question is other than maybe you could comment on that and how really beautiful that is. And what do you think is going on there? Maybe. Well, early on in the book, I, I talk about Venn diagrams. And if our listeners are not aware of this, this is it's a series of intersecting circles that kind of talk about where, you know, a shared something might be. And if you draw a Venn diagram with me and James Baldwin, there's this tiny, almost like infinitesimal, right. you know, space of overlapping, um, you know, lived identity. But what great artists do and I, I start with this in the introduction, and then I started with Baldwin as a critic and and um, Baldwin talking about art and story, because I thought that that would be our entry into this, this larger thing about how Baldwin opens up everything for us. Um, Mr. Faulkner, who, who both Baldwin and I have some issues with, <laughs> um, he's, he's at his very best on the page, as many writers are, as probably I am. Uh, disappointing often in real life. But what Mr. Baldwin said, which was the thing that I seized on, and I've seized on it in my own writing, I'm also a novelist, and thinking about Baldwin's novels and about his criticism and about his, you know, uh, essays looking at at politics and religion and, and race. Mr. Faulkner said that every great writer writes out of their tiny postage stamp of land. That's a great quote. I've never seen that before, but that's really good. And, and so that's that's our lived identity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I do my little, you know, elevator talk identity thing, I am a straight, white, Christian male of a certain age and a certain weight. <laughs> and And, you know, this is how I walk through the world. And... I can connect to other people who identify with that set of identifiers. But if I'm going to do my work as an artist, if I'm going to do my work as a fiction writer or an essayist or a preacher, then that postage stamp of land is not enough. It's got to be the place where I reach out and talk about the universal. And so, you know, Baldwin is a, gay, black, urban exile who spent much of his life outside of America. And, you know, again, the Venn diagrams would seem to suggest that he and I don't have that much in common. And he and my straight white Christian uh, students at Baylor don't have much in common. And, And that is certainly not all of my students, but what I hear over and over again as I teach Baldwin and talk about Baldwin and as I talk to interviewers about this book is that it's very clear that what Baldwin does is that opening out thing that you were doing on screen for us a while ago. It's, it's not the tiny Venn diagram constriction that would strangle the life out of us. But it is his saying, I start in this place, but we have so much in common that we don't recognize. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in theological terms, I talk about, you know, we are all made in the identity of God. We are all children of God. We have so much more in common than we don't. 
I, I still reflect on an experience that I had decades ago where I talked with a pastor in Kenya in, in a rural village about what we wanted in life and what we wanted for our families and what we wanted for our kids. And it was the same damn thing. You know, he lived in a mud hut that probably cost $50 in American dollars to build. And he was not a high school graduate. He was not a college graduate. I have an embarrassment of college degrees. It doesn't, it doesn't make me any better. And I talk about this in the Baldwin chapters. Like Baldwin is still so much smarter and wiser and, and more creative than I am. But at the end of the day, what Baldwin is reminding us is about our commonality. And that is what great art does. It says to us, I'm going to speak to you about where I am. But I'm going to reach across whatever perceived gaps or chasms you may imagine and tell you that we are so much more alike than we are different. And what I come back to over and over again, and in the work that I do in the larger church around racial healing, what I always remind people is, about Baldwin's teaching that white people and black people are equally enchained by our history. Right. And we cannot be rescued without all of us confronting this. And, and, and what he says, you know, to his nephew in the opening essay of the fire next time is he says, James, his nephew, you have to love them because they are trapped right. in this history. And we cannot be rescued unless they are rescued. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. That, and that's classic Baldwin stuff right there. Um, I suppose that idea, as much as any, was the thing that endeared me to him. Um, yeah. I had never really read him until about 20, it wasn't really that long ago, probably about 2015, 2016. And so um, now this is eisegesis. Sorry, I'm going to make it about myself for a minute. But um, oh, bring it in, you know, my my uh, in my tradition, you know, I just came I just became painfully aware that we were scapegoating um, lots of different folks, not the least of which was LGBTQ. And um, somewhere in there, like I, I wish I had taken a better notes and journaled better. But as I was reading James Cone and James Baldwin, by the way, James Allison, are you familiar with James Allison? No, I mean, I know the name. Tell He's me more. Well, he's a gay Catholic um, uh, priest. And I love him already. Exactly. He's white. And oh, by the way, so he's been kind of battling with the church his whole life about what, what kind of, um, you know, ministry he's going to have. And um, Pope Francis actually gave him a phone call about three. It's been probably about four years ago now and has relieved a lot of that tension Although there's still like with all religious systems, there's all kinds of problems. But James Allison is a um, a Girardian. Do you know Rene Girard? Yeah. So um, anyhow, I know that you do. <laughs> yeah, I definitely do. So um, so I'm reading the three Jameses for me: James Allison, and James Baldwin, James Cone, and yeah. somewhere somewhere in there, I I realize, oh my God not only is it good for the gay person for us to extend grace, it's good for us straight people to extend grace. 
And that's just a direct, I mean, that's just like, that's Baldwin all over. It is straight up Baldwin. Yep. And, and you know, this is, I mean, this is spiritual wisdom. It's emotional wisdom. It's therapy wisdom. Mm. Um, but, you know, what Baldwin tells us is hatred distorts the hater. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so when he talks in The Fire Next Time about the nation of Islam, he says, you know, any theology that hates a group of people distorts and diminishes the people who hate. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's directed at somebody. And there is often violence with that. I mean, we we live in an age where there is a ton of like hateful rhetoric directed toward people that can affect their lives. You know, I was watching Cassidy Hutchison on you know the news last night uh talking about you know sort of how political rhetoric directed at her has has made her life really difficult but it 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 makes me think of a line from cormac mccarthy uh from the border trilogy i think the last book of that and i'm not going to remember the title yes i will cities on the plane um where he says that hatred allows the person who is hated to take up a room in your house. Mm. And the only way to expel them is forgiveness. And I, I did not expect to bring James Baldwin and Cormac McCarthy to the same table, but that is actually, you know, that is absolutely Baldwinian theology right there. there and there we're back to theology again. Absolutely. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Oh, gosh, I had so many things underlined in your book. I'm flipping through some of this. I love underlining, but you do too much of it. You disadvantage yourself. Tell me more. Well, it's like I have students who underline everything. Yeah. And then they've underlined nothing. Right. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I I have that experience a lot with Baldwin. I mean, I would love it for people to have that with my books. Um, (laughs) Yeah, some of my some of my books. You're right. Um, if I had to do it over, I would have just chosen the po- portions not to underline. That would made more sense. It's like when our daughter was young, when she was like three, she got in timeout. She was put in timeout so much that one day I joked with my wife, "When we should just let her know when when she's not in timeout. Like when just get yeah, it. Yeah, that would be easier. It's right? just easier. Yeah, it would save us all a bunch of time." But uh, so, yeah, same kind of thing. Uh, brother, tell me about, yeah, he understood that race is a construct, a mythic structure erected by white men, especially in order to subjugate black people. Race, yeah, tell me, there might be some listeners, especially white folks who may not understand what he was saying about that. Well, this, this goes way back. By the way, I, that sounded arrogant. I might, I might not understand either. So tell us more about that. No, I don't, I don't think any, anybody would reflect it in that way. Um, early on in the fire next time, Baldwin in writing to his nephew says the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. And I am five years now into a book on racial identity, racial mythologies for Oxford University Press. It's my next big book for them. Um, And basically what it's about is how people who look like us have constructed a set of mythologies 
to create a hierarchy which tells us who we are. And so what Baldwin says here and elsewhere is that white people created black in order to create white. And so he says to his nephew, try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. The black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, an unmovable pure pillar. And as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. So I, I'm doing a lot of work lately, and I'm going to hold this up and your viewers will not hear this, but they will, I mean, read this, but they will hear this. Uh, I'm doing a bunch of work uh, with Robert P. Jones, who I think is one of the great writers about white Christian nationalism uh, in America. And Robbie and I are kind of in this space where we're talking about why this resurgence in white Christian nationalism is related to, to the upheaval um, in, in, in what white people think of as the, the perceived order, mm. you know? So like the black lives matter <laughs> rallies scared the crap out of a whole lot of white people. And I mean, not even to get deeply political on this, because, you know, we had a president in office who wanted uh, to order the military out to shoot people in the knees to to disable these uh, these rallies. Um, but if black people don't occupy the space that white people expect and require them to, then we don't know what space we're supposed to occupy. And, and that's it's a secular way of thinking about this theologically, of course. The way of thinking about this is that if we are all children of God, if we are all beloved, if we are all made in the image of God, then for any of us to impose a hierarchy where some children of God are held in subservience, their voices are marginalized, it is deeply unchristian, then that has got to be rejected. and removed. But in the work that I've been doing in largely white churches, there's an incredible amount of resistance to this. And I don't think that this is an extreme word to use. There is terror mm -hmm. around it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what Baldwin did in his time was he pointed this out to people and he pointed out the necessity of our telling the truth about our reality, which I'll just park this over here if you want to come back to this. I live in Texas, where legislators are trying to keep people from teaching American history. Uh, it's also true in Florida. It's true throughout the American South. Um, but if we don't tell the truth about what has happened and who we are and what we need to be, then, then how do we move to this place of true equality where everybody can sit at the welcome table? And that that's why Baldwin is... I mean, at the center of my thinking about a lot of the work that I do in churches, and uh, I work a lot in the Episcopal Church in diocesan meetings and clergy conferences where people are like, 
we want to do better, Baldwin. How do we get there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot in what you just said. People will need to hit rewind 60 seconds and listen to that again. Um, I, a couple comments. One, I thought of, I was actually looking to see if I have it handy, but I don't think so. I can't remember the guy's name, Vinny Zellori or something. He's a native indigenous, native American writer. Mm. Deloria. Deloria. Vine Deloria. There you go. Thank you. I said, Vinny, he has, first of all, that's also cool. (laughs) He he has, uh, I think it's the best title. It's my favorite title of all time of the book I read. I've only read one of his books and it's called Custard Died for Your Sins. (laughs) Are you aware of that? Yes, um, I, I do teach a lot of indigenous literature. And, and Robbie's new book, uh, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, talks about how white people in America dealt with indigenous people and with uh, with black people and enslaving black people. Um, and, and he has actually leaned into a bunch of um, Native American writing around that. Um, because basically he says it comes from the same place, this, this higher hierarchical um we're going to put ourselves at the top and everybody browner than us yeah is down the ladder yeah yeah and what he does with that title is he he completely um subverts you know the weirdness of penal substitutionary atonement theory and lays it back on white people it's and I, i remember i i read that just a few years ago thinking Good Lord, this was written like in the 60s, maybe late 50s. Oh, like 69, something like something like that. Like, where's where have where's it been my, my whole life? I could have. So anyhow, that's just a comment. Interesting. No, I, I, and I think it's really important. And, and what I love about Robbie's new book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy, is that basically it's saying that white Christians had a theological and psychological basis for what they did. Yeah. Like we're going to take this land from the people who occupy it, and then we're going to populate it with people we bring over from Africa to do our bidding. And we're going to find theological reasons to do that. Uh, so, like, Robbie talks about these uh, papal bulls, mm. which which basically set out this magic formula for you come to a new land full of brown people, and you you show them the cross and you say these words in Latin that they don't understand and maybe you don't even understand. And the land is yours. If they want to come to Jesus, God bless them. And if not, kill them. Yeah. Unbelievable. Theological, psychological reasons and ecclesiological reasons. Yeah, yeah. All, all, um, and all have to do with power. Well, it is it is super fun to be doing these events with 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 Robert Jones, I bet. who I, I think is you know one of our great voices on white supremacy, white Christian nationalism, um, and uh, I've had him to Baylor, uh, and and he's coming to Baylor next week, in fact, and we're going to talk about our books together, which will be super fun. Um, and if folks wanted to look that up, they could just Google our names: Robert P. Jones, Greg Garrett, Baylor Libraries, because uh, it's going to be live streamed and archived. Um, but I, I think there's a really 
there's there's a bunch of important work being done on white supremacy and white Christian nationalism by white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, because one of the recognitions that Robbie and I have both come to is that people of color have carried this flag yeah. so hard and so long and they are exhausted. Yeah. And, and one of my dear friends, Kelly Brown Douglas, the great uh, black liberation theologian, <laughs> said to me during the pandemic, I didn't create this problem, Greg. You did. <laughs> and only you and people like you right. can fix it. And, you know, I, I had wanted to be a good ally, you know, and march alongside them, maybe a couple of steps behind. Right. But the the great recognition that I've come to and that, that Baldwin helps me live into is this recognition that truth telling, particularly on the part of people who look like us, is an essential thing if anything is ever going to change. Yeah. Yeah. White people got to do better. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's interesting where uh, the spirit of all this led my partner and I for Easter this year. We actually went to a powwow, Native American. Sweet. Yeah. Over in Lawrence, Kansas, not far from where I'm at in Kansas City. Yeah. And uh, and it was it was and I'm, I think we went to church on Easter Sunday. But the highlight of the weekend was Saturday and hanging out with those people. And I thought that's, this is pretty cool. I like the trajectory of where this is going. This. Yeah. 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 White people. We we have a lot of work to do. Well, you're helping us do it. And um, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today and wish there was a way we could stay in touch. And I look forward to reading. There are ways. (laughs) There are ways. I look forward to reading more of your stuff and thank you for what you're doing. That's really, really important. I hope people rush out and buy it. The book we're talking about today is called The Gospel According to James Baldwin. And it just came out, right? Uh, yeah, like a week ago. Yeah. And it's doing the, well, I hope. Yeah. It uh, it uh, landed on Amazon as the number one new book of liberation theology. Great. And that's, you know, thanks to my great publisher, uh, Orbis Books, uh, cool. which is the publisher of James Cone and Kelly Brown Douglas. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm riding on the, the shoulders of giants. That's right. Uh, but but Jonathan, thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk with you about uh, Baldwin and about race and justice um, and and about theology, because, I mean, they are all intertwined uh, as, as we think about these things. Yes, sir. They, they really are. All right, my man. Well, thanks so much for hanging out and uh, God bless. Thanks so much. Really nice to be with Greg. I hope you'll find him. Just search for Greg Garrett. That's G-R-E-G with one G at the end. And then G-A-R-R-E-T-T. That's his last name. That's the spelling. Now you have no excuse. Just Google him, YouTube him, Twitter him, whatever the case might be. And you can learn more about him. Thank you so much. I hope you get to share this episode, like it, review it. Make sure you give it all the stars or a thumbs up or whatever it is your platform demands. And thanks so much for being a part of the show. Have a great week.